Hi, it's Jen. Normally, we'd bring you the news roundup today, but with the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, today's podcast will take a look at the impact of this ruling. We'll continue to cover the court's decision in the days and weeks ahead, but for the latest, be sure to tune in to your local NPR station or visit npr.org. I wanted to talk about um, the abortion that I had when I was in my 20s um, after Roe v. Wade was was, uh, ruled by the Supreme Court. And um, I had a safe legal abortion, thanks Roe v. Wade. Um, I was so poor, um, I, I could barely buy food, pay my rent, and put gas in my car. And my then boyfriend said he wouldn't support me, wouldn't visit me, wouldn't support the child. So I was just so impoverished, I couldn't um, think even, I just could barely take care of myself. I couldn't um, think about bringing another person into my life that I would have to support. Um, So I, as I said, I, I had an abortion and I've never regretted it. The Supreme Court has overturned Roe v. Wade ending the constitutional right to abortion in a 6-3 vote. There are 13 states across the U.S. that have trigger laws in effect. They'll ban most abortions immediately or very quickly with state legislative action. This ruling overturns almost 50 years of federal abortion protections. Today, we talk to our panel about the impact of the ruling, not only for abortion access, but also for health care more broadly. We also hear from an OBGYN about how the end of Roe v. Wade will impact her work. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to join future conversations or just to let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Life can be overwhelming, and many are burned out without even knowing it. Struggling with work or any of life's roles can lead to a lack of motivation and detachment. Prioritize your mental health by talking with someone. BetterHelp Online Therapy offers video, phone, and live chat sessions with a professional therapist, and it's more affordable than in-person therapy. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Joining us is Anita Kumar. Anita is the Senior Editor of Standards and Ethics at Politico. Anita, welcome back to the program. Great to be back with you, Jen. Also with us is Lisa Desjardins, a correspondent for PBS NewsHour. Hi, Lisa. Hello. Good to be here. And Katie Turr also joins us. Katie is an MSNBC anchor and a correspondent for NBC News. She's also author of Rough Draft, a memoir. Katie, welcome. Thanks for having me, Jen. Let's jump into the conversation. The U.S. Supreme Court has overturned the constitutional right to an abortion. It reverses Roe v. Wade. That's the court's five-decade-old decision that guaranteed a woman's right to obtain an abortion. The decision reads in part, quote, the Constitution does not prohibit the citizens of each state from regulating or prohibiting abortion. Roe and Casey arrogated that authority, end quote. Again, the court's conservatives wrote that in their majority opinion. Anita, your reaction to that news? Yeah, I mean, this is something that we had expected um, ever since this uh, Supreme Court opinion draft had been uh, released or not released, leaked. Um, And so we had been expecting this, but I expect this to be obviously a major, major uh, issue, both as states and, and, and activists try to figure out what to do next. Congress, the president of the United States, 
And of course, this will be a huge political issue in these coming months before the midterms. Katie, your reaction to this ruling, especially in light of the fact that there are 13 states that have so-called trigger laws in effect that will take effect immediately. That includes Arkansas, Idaho, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, and Wyoming. Those laws will go into effect uh, either automatically or very quickly now that this ruling has come down. I think it's going to change a lot of things for women across the country and not just women, but for men too, because deciding whether or not you have a family is a monumental decision. And this is now the Supreme Court taking that decision out of your hands if you live in those 13 states. Uh, what I find most interesting right now um, is that in this uh, opinion that we're just going through, um, I, I noticed that Chief Justice uh, Thomas uh, Robert, Thomas Roberts, excuse me, um, John Roberts. John Roberts. Uh-huh. John okay. Roberts. I was confusing my MSNBC anchor. Um, John Roberts voted with the majority. And that was unclear when we got that uh, probable draft decision a few months ago where he would fall on it. He said he did vote with the majority, but he would have taken a, quote, more measured course, stopping short of a ruling row outright. Uh, and again, the three liberals on the court dissented. There are those trigger laws, as you mentioned, and now there are also uh, more liberal states like the one I'm in here in New York that are saying that they're going to be vowing to ensure that people from other states, women from other states, have the ability to gain at abortion access in a blue state like New York. Lisa, I want to hear from you on this as well. Right. You know, so I'm looking through these um, opinions as we have them. It's uh, over 200 pages. So I haven't finished them yet. <laughs> but, um, but you know, I especially wanted to see we had seen a draft of this majority opinion. And so I wanted to read um, the dissent. And it is, of course, from the three uh, liberal leaning justices, Breyer, Sotomayor and Kagan. And one sentence stands out um, pretty near the top of their, uh, their dissent. They write, whatever the exact scope of coming laws, One result of today's decision is certain, the curtailment of women's rights and of their status as free and equal citizens. You know, it's clear that, that this is a profound decision on both sides, and the language in these opinions is important. And here you see those liberal justices putting out the stakes. It is not about one clinic or another for them. It is about women's rights. Of course, for the justices and the majority, they see it differently. But but I, I just reading through this, it just after we had the draft opinion, in some ways, perhaps uh, we may have kind of taken for granted the stakes here on both sides. And this opinion is bringing back to me um, what the justices see in those stakes in a profound way. We got this comment from Catherine, who says, now that the Supreme Court has overturned Roe v. Wade, does Congress have the power to pass a law legalizing abortion for the United States? Anita? Congress could act, but but we do not expect them to act. Um, You know, we go back to so many different things with the Senate and how they need this 60 votes, the 60 vote threshold. As as people may know, the the Senate is split 50-50 with the vice president, a Democrat being the, you know, presiding over the Senate can break those ties, but there isn't uh, there isn't enough. There aren't enough votes there to really pass anything. I uh, wouldn't expect that. I think that there is a lot of conversation about that. I think actually a lot of pressure has already turned to President Biden. And you might argue uh, he doesn't have the power to do this, and he does not. 
but there's still a lot of pressure from members of his own party, the Democratic Party, for him to do something to, you know, try to undercut this in some way. And so some of those things could be, you know, making it easier for people to get contraceptives to, uh, you know, to, to undercut some states, uh, what we expect our state laws saying, uh, you know, trying to criminalize women for traveling from one state to another to get an abortion. So there are executive actions that he could take. His team is looking at that. And I think we're only going to see more pressure on him uh, to try to act and, and do more. Well, and Lisa, I'm really curious to hear about whether this changes anything in Congress as, as someone who covers that body. There's been so much discussion about what Congress has been able to pass, what it hasn't been able to pass. And and it, I mean, there's a lot of, of criticism and a lot, very little trust in Congress right now to get anything done. But what's your read? You know, I think this is speaking a bit more to the politics of what's happening. And I do think that uh, the expectation of this decision did affect what was happening in Congress for the last month. In fact, I know from sources that Republicans uh, are concerned about how this decision could affect the midterms, that they believe it could um, engage the Democratic base and really increase their turnout in the fall. And for that reason, Republicans, um, they, they, they feel that they are gaining ground specifically with women, especially women of children and school-aged children. They've seen that, and they're worried that this kind of opinion may harm them with that group. So that actually led to some um, incentive for them to compromise on the gun bill. They were concerned that that same group, mothers of kids, um, saw Republicans as not understanding their fears for their children. And for some Republicans, remember Leader McConnell voted for that gun violence, gun violence bill, um, they were concerned that if they didn't do something on guns, uh, that they that they would risk losing ground with that group. Um, and I, so I think that these things are all interconnected. Um, and I also think that you're going to see, I'm watching the right, because we know now looking at Justice Thomas's concurring opinion, in his opinion that just came out, he is opening the door. He's saying that the Supreme Court now needs to look at relook at contraception, same-sex marriage. And those are things that we are going to see probably be discussed in state legislatures and return um, to the public forum. We got this message from I am Scorpio on Twitter who says, I knew this was coming and yet I'm still sick to my stomach. My 15-year-old is still asleep and I don't think I can handle talking to her when she wakes up. She wakes up to a very different world than the one I grew up in. You know, Katie, when we look specifically at abortion and how Americans poll around this issue, it's complicated. But is this decision in line with public opinion around abortion? It's not. It's not in line with the public opinion. The majority still thinks that there should be access to some abortion in this country, although um, it is a slightly um, smaller majority than it used to be. There are more people out there who say that there should be some restrictions around it, maybe even some tighter restrictions. Uh, But the outright banning um, of abortion uh, in certain places is not favored. There's that Mississippi law that would ban all abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Um, There are also Also, I believe it's an Oklahoma law that said that um, banning all abortions um, after conception, you can't 
do anything after conception. And there were questions about what that might mean for IVF, because you have embryos that have been fertilized. Would that mean that you can still have access to those embryos? Would you need to take those embryos um, to full term? There are questions surrounding that. Um, Back to the point that was made a minute ago about the Republicans and what it might mean for the midterms. I know there's a lot of hope among Democrats that this will galvanize support. This will get voters to go out, especially when you You start talking about the other laws um, or other decisions the Supreme Court has made over the years being potentially overturned, like same-sex marriage or contraception, which might seem extremely extreme uh, for a lot of people in this country. But Mitch McConnell said when he was talking about why he sided with the, the Gun Violence Act, the gun reform bill that just passed the Senate last night. He said it's no secret that, they're lo- that they are losing the suburbs. He admitted it readily. So the question is, uh, do Republicans run headfirst into this decision and use it as they campaign? Republicans have been single issue voters on this subject, a lot of them out there. Um, or do they back off? And, and does it depend where the Republican is? Does it suddenly make certain seats more competitive than than they were yesterday. We got this comment from Mary on Twitter who says, if you want to hear my reaction and surely the reactions of millions of other women, go sit in your car and cry. That's what it sounds like. We also got this from Stephen on Twitter who says, outlawing abortion is a direct violation of freedom of religion. In Judaism, life begins at birth, not conception. Lisa, I know you haven't had much time to look through the opinion, but what is the core argument being made by the conservative majority of the court here. You know, this is there's a lot in here. This this is a a majority that spends a lot of time thinking about history and the text of the Constitution. But I think the argument as looking through this is simple. Um, Justice Alito writing for the majority is saying that the Constitution um, itself does not talk about abortion. And because of that, um, he does not see a federal, the, a limit on abortion, a limit on states, um, and that, you know, that states can't, can make whatever abortion law they want, whether they want to, in fact, prohibit it or not. He's saying the Constitution says nothing. And so in that reading, um, essentially the lack of any specific mention in the Constitution of abortion means that states can do what they want. Of course, we all know from Roe and from Casey um, that the words of the Constitution, you know, are, are applied in day-to-day life and as life changes, as technology changes, and that the court in the past found clearly that they a right to privacy in the Constitution, and some say in multiple clauses in the Constitution. So the court is throwing out that idea, that right to privacy as applied to abortion, and instead saying textually there is no mention of abortion in the Constitution, and that is why it, it, it is not a national, um, we c- it's not a national right. Dan on Twitter says, so we're clear here, the Supreme Court decided states can't limit concealed weapons, but can limit bodily autonomy. It's tragically absurd. And and Dan there is putting this decision um, in the context of a decision we saw come down earlier this week around guns and, and New York's ability to regulate guns in certain ways. Katie, do you see a connection here? You know, the, there are folks out there that are making this connection, saying on the one hand, the Supreme Court is saying abortion should be left up to the states, but then taking the the rights for states to limit who can carry a gun where 
out of the state's hands and saying that this is a federal issue. The Supreme Court, uh, the majorities will argue that one is a constitutional amendment specifically, and one is not a constitutional amendment. Um, Here in New York, the elected leaders uh, are extremely worried about what this is going to mean because this is such a highly populated area where you know, just to be frank, tensions can run high, especially uh, during rush hour, say if you're on the subway or if you are trying to drive in this city. And there's concern that if somebody is, is carrying a gun, those tensions could potentially spill out. Or if somebody sees somebody else in a situation, there could be ricochet gunfire that we wouldn't necessarily have before. Also concern for law enforcement officials who have been according to an interview that Kathy Hochul gave this morning, um, who have been trained to notice a bulge on the hip, hip, trained to notice when somebody is caring. That is illegal here in this city, except in very uh, certain circumstances, or at least it had been. Uh, how do they react now to seeing more people on the streets in New York City carrying a gun? Um, it was also, the point was also made that when you're talking about gun violence, a lot of the guns that are used in gun violence are stolen guns. And is there concern now that more guns out there, more permitting available, will it be easier to potentially steal a gun and get it on the streets? We got this comment from Vanessa who says, my opinion on Roe, 75% of us believe abortion should be legal and this SCOTUS is holding the country hostage to their minority extremist religious beliefs. Anita, I think this is this is part of the discussion I've seen around this decision is whether or not this is coming through a religious lens. Your thoughts? You know, I think that we've seen from from the conservative majority there that this is um, something that they have talked about that it's uh, an important part of their life. We've seen that as they became, you know, they were nominated to the Supreme Court, and obviously this is an issue that you know, um, as they were nominated and as the backgrounds were done on them, that we know sort of where they're coming from and that's an issue for them. But of course, they go back to, and of course, we haven't read the entire opinion here, they go back to this constitutional uh, right. It's not It's not about, uh, they're not saying that it's about religion as far as I know, but we do know that th- that's their background. You know, I'm, I'm remembering back to you know, President Trump when he nominated all uh, three of these six conservatives on the Supreme Court and talking about, you know, their background and what they stood for and, uh, you know, that piece of their life that was very important. If you remember years ago, he said if he got uh, members of the, he he got to nominate people on the Supreme Court, this actual thing would happen. I, I see a lot of people now saying, look, we knew this was coming, but we sort of still can't believe it. So, I mean, I think that's the phase that we're in in this country. And I think you're going to see a lot of uh, protests and people sort of talking about their feelings um, in demonstrations and protests across the country. I want to hear from each of you on how this sitting Supreme Court has responded to the idea of precedence. Uh, Roe has been decided law for decades. If you sat through any of the Supreme Court uh, justices' confirmation hearings, you heard them say, this is decided law, this is decided law. So in light of this decision, and I'm also thinking about the decision this week to limit the ability to enforce Miranda rights, Anita, how are you thinking about this court's relationship to precedent? 
Well, I mean, you really pointed out something very interesting there. I mean, you could go back to uh, all of these justices not agreeing with Roe v. Wade, right? They they thought that decision was wrong, we think. Um, but you're right. We have heard them over and over saying it was it has been decided. So it's a it's we of course we haven't read everything that that has been said in this, so we don't know exactly what they're what they're saying. We'll be we'll be looking at that in the in the hours to come as we read through these these hundreds of pages. But it it is a really interesting um, point that you bring up, and I think that we're going to be hearing about that. You know, this is going to bring up a lot of different things, including the fact that. Uh, there are a lot of people that don't like how these n- the nomination process works. That the justices or would be justices have to say certain things to, uh, you know, to get through that process. But it's perhaps not what uh, they believe. Um, and so, you know, how do you rectify or how do you put those two things together? And I don't know. I think that's going to be a debate that we're hearing a lot about. Katie, what about for you? You know, I'm I was struck by. Um, Susan Collins, uh, in the voting for Justice Kavanaugh, said that she was certain that he would not vote to overturn Roe v. Wade. And and part of the process um, in these confirmation hearings, it could seem, is to give cover for lawmakers who um, need to take a a risky vote. And for Susan Collins at the time, it it, it was a, a potentially risky vote for her. These justices, though, that President Trump nominated and then were confirmed by the Senate were all handpicked from the Federalist Society. In the campaign for president, in his 2015-2016 campaign for president, part of his pledge to Republican voters would be that he would only choose justices from a list given to him by the Federalist Society. And it was understood that these would be justices who wanted to overturn Roe v. Wade. While you didn't hear them say that explicitly in their confirmations hearings, obviously they felt they could not. The implication had always been that this is what they were going to do, barring some, you know, sleight of hand on the justices' part once they got into the Supreme Court. So again, I do agree that this will call into question the confirmation process. It also puts a strong light back on the move that Michigan McConnell made a few years ago um, not to hold confirmation hearings for President Obama's choice of Merrick Garland to wait a year until there was, as we saw, a Republican president. And then to fast track the confirmation hearings in in the opposite way um, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. It's striking. The politics at play here is striking. Lisa, I want to get your your thoughts on this as well. Yes, I think a couple of things. First of all, this it should be mentioned that while this is devastating, I'm getting texts from sources and friends who are devastated by this, using that word, by this ruling, <clears throat> for many Americans, for those <clears throat> who have been fighting anti-abortion activists, this is something that they never really, they, they've prayed about, they've marched about, and for them, this is a massive victory. And at the top, at the head of that line, the mastermind, the reason this is happening really is Mitch McConnell, as Katie mentioned. You know, he is not the most popular person in his party or in the Senate. However, he has had, he plays the long game. That's the title of his book. He is the one who uh, sort of bent the Senate to his will to get these justices in place. One other thing, you mentioned um, the religious aspect. Five of the six justices on this opinion are Catholic. 
you know, I think you just cannot, un- you cannot understate um, the religious aspect of this. The anti-abortion movement is driven um, by religious faith. It is driven by that kind of idea. Um, and you see the members of the court themselves, this is their faith. And, and then to the idea of precedent, to get to all these great questions you're asking, um, I was remembering, um, and I was in Justice Barrett's hearing and also Justice Kavanaugh's hearing, I heard them say, um, you know, they wouldn't say if Roe was correctly decided, but they did call it precedent. Here, here's a quote from Justice Barrett from her hearing. She was asked about um, gun law, the Heller decision at that point. She wrote, she said, judges can't just wake up one day and say, I have an agenda. I hate guns. I like abortion. I hate abortion. And walk in and impose their will on the world. There she was clearly signaling that, you know, I will respect precedent. But in fact, what's happened here is this group of six justices are um, putting their view on the world. I think in their view, they're abiding by the Constitution. But many others question that this does line up with their ideological and personal views as well. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Remember to leave us a voicemail for future conversations. Download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave a message. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. Let's get back into the conversation. In the majority opinion, Justice Samuel Alito wrote, It is, quote, It is time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives, end quote. For the dissent, Justices Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan wrote, quote, The majority would allow states to ban abortion from conception onward because it does not think forced childbirth at all implicates a woman's right to equality and freedom, end quote. It's a historic moment, one with massive implications for every American. And there are a lot of questions about what this means for the future of abortion access and health care more broadly. Joining us now is Julie Rovner. She's the chief Washington correspondent for Kaiser Health News. So, Julie, what's your initial reaction to the ruling now that we've seen its final form? Well, this is exactly what we expected to happen. Um, this was very similar to the, the uh, unprecedented leak of the majority opinion in May. Uh, uh, we thought that the chief justice who had said, who had signaled during the debate, you know, the oral arguments on this case, that he would have upheld the Mississippi law that was at the center of this case that banned abortion after 15 weeks. Um, but he would not have struck down Roe v. Wade and, and Casey v. Planned Parenthood, the, the two major abortion cases. In the end, though, he voted for with the the majority for the judgment. He just filed a concurring opinion saying he wouldn't have gone that far. But even without his vote, there was there were enough votes to overturn Roe v. Wade on the court. There were. And in the end, he voted with them. So it turned into a six to three rather than a five to four ruling. Are there any significant differences between this final ruling and the draft that was leaked earlier this year? I obviously haven't read the entire thing yet. We just got it in the last 40 minutes, but there doesn't seem to be. It seems to be very similar to what was in the leaked draft that uh, that the majority decided that that Roe v. Raid was wrongly decided and that it should be basically overturned. And that's what they did. And it's this is really it, it's hard to overstate how unprecedented this is. Well, we're taking your calls today. Let's go to Jerome in Florida. Jerome, you want to talk about the economic disparity of this decision. Go ahead. Yeah, thank you. Um, Call me a pragmatist, and I look at this from the 50,000-foot level. Uh, 
unfortunately, the U.S. has just created or recreated a cottage industry. Those who have the funds will travel to other states or other countries where abortions are legal. Those who don't have the funds will probably be supported financially by Planned Parenthood organizations who won't lack for funds under these circumstances. Those who experience rape and incest, uh, which presently largely go unreported, uh, will bring in unwarded children and what will happen to them growing up. There will be bootleg abortions, same as in prohibitions, in the 20s and 30s. Only now, it doesn't take awfully much for a first-year med student to do a DNC, and it's relatively safe. So I say, connect the dots. Thank you. Jerome, thanks for that message. Let's go to Sophie in Annapolis. Sophie, what's your reaction to the ruling? Hi, good morning, and thank you so much for taking my call. My reaction is I am distressed, disgusted, and I just have so much disappointment. Um, for me, I'm a fifth grade teacher in a public school, and to try to teach about the separation of powers, that's one of my one of my reactions. But more than that, this is just the beginning. It's not, it's what's going to come next. It's now they're coming for, going to be coming for something else. And people say, oh, that's so not true. But, but it is. And that's my, my greatest distress for the future of women and other people in this country. And um, I'm just so incredibly distressed and disappointed. And, you know, we heard yesterday, you know, evil persists when good people don't say anything. We saw that. And now we see this and the likes of Susan Collins, who just actually believed that, you know, Mr. Kavanaugh would would uphold this. That's part of my just absolute disgust. And um, the other thing is this ruling, once again, Decided by a bunch of, with all due respect, mostly older white men that are affecting millions and millions of women and men of color and and women that they don't know anything about. Thanks for that message. We got this comment from Russell who says, I live in the ruby red state of Missouri, which is strict trigger laws, which will now go into immediate effect. This ruling will not prevent abortions, only legal safe abortions. This saddens, infuriates me and disgusts me. Julie, we should mention here that 13 states have trigger laws. So now with this decision, either immediately or with a, a little legislative action, those laws will go into place. How does that change the landscape of abortion access in the U.S.? Well, we had already seen what was going on in Texas, where they passed a law uh, that went into effect last September that the Supreme Court refused to block, even though technically Roe v. Wade still existed back then. Uh, And, you know, women have been trying, women who of means uh, have been going to other states, but it's been hard. Those other states have gotten backed up. Uh, It's been difficult. You know, they talk about you should, if you're going to get an abortion, you should do it early. But in some cases, there have been long delays because there have been long delays in being able to get appointments. There's simply not the capacity to serve all the women from Texas who have been seeking abortion. We're now going to see that pretty much across the South. That's Those are where most of the states are, uh, the, the South and the upper Midwest, uh, where abortion will become illegal and where women will have to travel if they can or seek out illegal means uh, if they can't or carry unwanted pregnancies to term. Are we also seeing states ponder the question of limiting or attempting to limit people's access to go across state lines to access abortion care. We've seen states, including Missouri, talk about this, um, you know, that they would try to, to ban women from going to neighboring states, uh, even getting abortion pills and coming back. Uh, it's not at all clear that, that that is legal, but it was not at all clear until just now that the Supreme Court would overturn Roe v. Wade.
Let's go back to the phones. We have Reese in Virginia. Reese, go ahead. Hi. Yeah, thank you so much for taking my call. I grew up in Mississippi, and I went to school in Louisiana at an HBCU, and I saw I saw with my own eyes, it's very sad, that a female used a clothes hanger to end a pregnancy because she didn't have the money to get to or have access to reproductive education. And I just think that we're really, this is egregious. We're really turning back the hands of time. And what about protecting the whole child? How about the hungry child, the homeless child? You know, I I think we're missing the boat here, especially, I want to say the men, I I say that cautiously. The, The men don't have a right to participate in what women do with our bodies. And I think that's, that's where, we need to look at. And if, if men are going to have a right to say in women's bodies, then we have a right to say what goes on in a man's body. Reese, thank you for that call. Julie, President Biden has reportedly been weighing executive action on abortion rights. Now that Roe has been overturned, what kind of executive order could we see? Well, there's some question about what the FDA could do to make abortion pills more easily available. Um, a number of states have tried to to ban the abortion pill, which was approved by the FDA in the year 2000. Um, some of the restrictions on its use were removed during the pandemic so that women wouldn't have to go in person uh, to, to take the pill, which has been shown to be uh, pretty safe when, when used as directed. Uh, and the, the president you know, that could try and overrule some of the states that are trying to ban that on the the theory, and we've, we've tested this with other drugs, that states can't ban federally approved drugs. So that's one possibility. There's talk of making uh, federal facilities available uh, for women to possibly get abortion or to get telemedicine abortions, although there is still the Hyde Amendment that bans most federal funding of abortion. So it's hard to know how that's going to work. I mean, the president, this is, remember, a president who was anti-abortion early in his career and who has been, uh, you know, sort of derided for having not said the word abortion through most of this. Um, so obviously, there, you know, it is an administration that is devoted to a woman's right to choose, and they're going to try to do something, but they haven't wanted to say up until now exactly what it is they might do. Uh, 16 states and the District of Columbia have enshrined the right to an abortion into state law. So what does this ruling mean for them? Well, at the moment, uh, it means that the abortion will remain available in those states. Of course, we've seen that change just last week in Iowa, where the Iowa Supreme Court had ruled in 2018 that abortion was protected by the state constitution. Well, there's a new Iowa Supreme Court, and last week they ruled that, yeah, no, it wasn't. So, uh, you know, it's it's hard to know how strongly that enshrinement lasts. I mean, this, this will be something that is now returned definitely. And I mean, not that it already wasn't in the political realm, but it's it's definitely in the political realm um, for basically every office uh, that everything is at stake. But for the moment, uh, at least with the elimination of Roe v. Wade, uh, abortion is a decision that's up to the states. Now, if Republicans take over Congress and take over the White House, they could then ban it. Or we could see another uh, uh, lawsuit that suggests that abortion is unconstitutional. But that hasn't happened yet. Cecil says women still have the vote and there is an election coming up. So that power to vote the supporters of retraction out. 
And Sybil says, I find it hypocritical of the right and the court stating that abortion rights were not the intent of the founding fathers when one of the founding principles of this country was the separation of church and state. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a message. Let's bring another voice into the conversation. Joining us now is Leah Littman. She's an assistant professor at University of Michigan School of Law. She's also the co-host of the podcast, Strict Scrutiny. Leah, we've talked a lot heading up into this decision about what was likely to happen. I know you haven't had a lot of time to look at the decision, but your early reactions. So the decision is quite similar to the draft opinion that was leaked almost a month ago. That is, it announces that the Constitution does not protect the right to an abortion because that right isn't mentioned in the text of the Constitution, and neither is it deeply rooted in the country's history or tradition. And how it assesses whether the right is deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition could call into question a host of other constitutional rights, like the right to marriage equality or the right to contraception, even though the majority opinion continues to disclaim that its opinion in Dobbs necessarily overrules those decisions as well. The number to call with your thoughts is 855-236-1212. That's 855-236-1A1A. Leah, just help us understand the, the Supreme Court's current relationship to precedent, because again, Roe v. Wade had been law for, for decades. I'd say it's not a great relationship. It's a little rocky right now. Um, As the dissent highlights, what seems to be guiding the majority is power, not reason. They say that is the new currency of the court's decision-making. And the majority's efforts to you know, distinguish precedent and to insist that there are no real reliance interests on, you know, the idea that women could control their reproductive lives is just a stunning claim. You know, the majority opinion really gives little attention and little acknowledgement to just how fundamental and significant childbirth, pregnancy um, are to women's lives and the ability to decide when and whether to have a child. So the majority basically minimizes, you know, precedent that it just disagrees with um, and is unwilling to give those precedents, you know, any real weight. Julie, abortion access advocates, of course, were concerned about this day. What did they say about what this would mean for women's health, economic security more broadly? Well, you know, I think it's really important to know that this decision can go way beyond abortion. States are now free to declare abortion to be almost anything they want, including many forms of commonly used birth control. I'm not talking about the the abortion pill. I'm talking about the morning after pill, some uh, IUDs, some just regular birth control pills that uh, some people see as abortifacient could be banned. There's concern about about doctors and other health professionals uh, being trained that miscarriage management is... It's basically the same as an early abortion. Uh, Will there be any training available for health professionals? So even in states where abortion could remain legal, they might not not have the people who are trained to actually provide the services. I want to read this comment we got from Chris, who says pro-lifers aren't unsympathetic to the fact that women face difficulty being pregnant and having a child. They don't desire to control women, but to protect a person without a voice. They aren't unaware that there are a lot of issues that will need to be worked through regarding overturning Roe v. Wade. But they just don't think the moral answer is to allow for taking the life of an innocent child. Leah, your response to that, I realize I stumbled through it a bit, but I'm sure you're able to, to glean what Chris was saying. I think what that, you know, line of argument overlooks is that 
there is another life and another future at stake in these decisions as well. You know, women and people you know, who become pregnant are more than just a vessel for potential life. They are people with hopes. They are people with dreams, plans. They have other children. You know, most women who obtain abortions have families. You are asking them to risk their life for an unintended pregnancy that could compromise, you know, their life, their health, the safety of their family. And those costs are severely undercounted and unappreciated when states force women to again, undergo an extremely risky, you know, unintended pregnancy and childbirth. We mentioned a little earlier, Leah, the fact that 13 states have trigger laws in place. But I'm, I'm particularly interested in hearing from you about states that are pursuing personhood laws, basically saying that life starts from the moment of conception and where we might see those laws go and what, what it would mean. One of the dangerous things about those laws is exactly what Julie highlighted, namely laws that announce life begins at conception could potentially criminalize common methods of contraception, whether it is IUDs, the morning after pill, or other mechanisms that women use to control their bodies and to decide whether to become pregnant. So personhood laws you know, run the risk of not just criminalizing abortion, but also criminalizing various forms of contraception. They will also complicate, as Julie was saying, you know, the treatment of miscarriages and other forms of reproductive health care. And, you know, abortion is now, I'm not sure people appreciated this, but like once this mandate issues, abortion is going to be illegal in many places in the United States. The sudden withdrawal of abortion care is just a dramatic shift in doctors' ability to provide healthcare, and women's ability to control their lives. Julie, how are abortion access advocates talking about this decision? I know they've been preparing for it, but what are you hearing? Well, I mean, basically, they're doubling down on uh, the the politics of this, you know, the, the concern that this could could spread beyond. Obviously, they have seen this coming, uh, if, if not just for the last month since we saw the leaked decision, for most of the last year since the court actually accepted this case, which it had no reason to accept in the first place unless it intended to overturn Roe. So there was, there was every possibility and expectation that this would happen. I think abortion rights supporters, you know, are concerned first about women in states where abortion will become immediately illegal, uh, helping, we've already heard about abortion funds, about helping women travel, about helping women get the abortion pill. Um, there's there's obviously a lot of concern that, you know, there is safe self-managed abortion and there is unsafe self-managed abortion. Um, and, you know, my uncle was an OBGYN in the 1950s and 1960s, and he was a very conservative guy, except on abortion, because he'd seen so many women who ended up in his emergency room who'd had illegal abortions and had died or come very close to it. We got this comment from Susan who says, let's not waste time bemoaning the loss. If six people can take away the rights of half the United States, then let's fix the Constitution. We could pass equal rights amendments for real, or we could pass a privacy amendment that would protect the rights for abortion and same-sex marriages and relationships. Leah, you're our legal expert here. What do you make of that comment from Susan? 
I think constitutional amendments at the federal level are prohibitively difficult. You know, they require a supermajority assent of state legislatures, you know, given how, frankly, gerrymandered the electoral map is, as well as individual state legislatures. I'm not sure that that is a plausible path to protecting access to abortion, notwithstanding the fact that a majority of the American people believe that abortion should be safe and legal, you know, in at least some points, you know, during a person's pregnancy. We also got this comment from Andrea who says, if anyone thinks this court is stopping here, look at Thomas's concurring opinion about, quote, reconsidering all of this court's substantive due process precedents, including Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell, end quote. Uh, Leah, just give us a rundown of what those cases dealt with. Griswold was a decision that uh, concluded there was constitutional protections for access to contraception. Obergefell versus Hodges is the marriage equality decision that held states could not deny marriage licenses to same-sex couples. And Lawrence versus Texas is the decision that invalidated a statute criminalizing sexual intimacy between consenting adults of the same sex. So those are the decisions that Justice Thomas just announced he would like to overrule. Here's another comment from Maggie who says, I am probably one of the few in the U.S. who aren't sure exactly where they fall on the abortion issue. I don't believe in unfettered access to abortion, but I'm not one to ban outright abortion. I'm not one to ban abortion outright. If you ask me to choose a week after which I don't believe in abortion, I can't tell you. Julie, does this reflect some of the complexity in in U.S. opinion around this issue? It does. You know, I've been covering abortion since 1987 when I was a baby cub reporter. And Really, public opinion has shifted only at the margins. People are very troubled by this. They simultaneously believe that abortion is bad, but that it should be up to the woman. Um, and again, you know, it's the just uh, Chief Justice Roberts was saying that you know that the Mississippi 15-week ban gives women plenty of time to decide whether or not to have an abortion. But sometimes you don't know until after 15 weeks that there's a terrible problem with the pregnancy. Um, it's it's not a simple thing. Every single pregnancy is different. Every single woman's circumstances is different. And Roe v. Wade was an attempt at creating a balance. The the Supreme Court, even back in 1973, recognized that there was this tension. Um, They tried to sort it out. Um, This court has decided that there is no tension, that the interest in potential life outweighs any interest that the pregnant woman might have. Let's go back to the phones. We have Elaine in Illinois. Elaine, what's on your mind? Okay, I'm 80 years old and lived through the era prior to Roe versus Wade. I had two friends that had unwanted pregnancies. One went through a backstreet butcher and ended up not being able to have children the rest of her life. The other one, because of religious reasons, um, went ahead and had the child. It was handled by her family doctor and Catholic charities and went really quick. My concern is this. I have never um, heard anything discussed about what will happen to the children that are born to women that cannot take care of them or do not want them. When When I was young, there were orphanages and there were homes for unwed mothers that were options at that time. So I've I've never heard what's going to happen to to the children. Elaine, thank you. And I'm very concerned about that. Elaine, thank you for that call. Uh, When we look at the landscape of states that are limiting access to abortion or now eliminating that access altogether, 
I mean, Julie, what do we know about whether there are resources in place to support families? Well, the very first thing that that we are lacking is obstetrical care in a lot of these places. It's very difficult uh, already for women in rural areas to find hospitals and and doctors to deliver their babies. Um, So if we have many more women uh, coming to term, that's going to be a bigger problem. We obviously have not an enormous amount of support for, you know, women who have children that they have difficulty affording. Um, That, you know, at least uh, Henry Hyde, who's, you know, now famous for the Hyde Amendment, uh, for banning most abortions uh, under under federal law actually worked to to do thing to also give more money to infant mortality programs and early childhood development programs, recognizing that if we were going to bring more children into the world, that perhaps we should support them. That's not necessarily the case right now. We got this comment from John on Twitter who says, I am constantly gobsmacked that our court would place more value on the fetus of a rape victim than the safety of our children in school. But I think it's important to point out here, Julie, that when we look at abortion access in the country, who accesses it, who accesses it, <laughs> who accesses it and why, we're often talking about people who have families um, we're, we're not necessarily talking about rape and incest. These are just people who find themselves in a situation where they can't often afford a child. That's right. And most of these people already have children. One of the difficulties with women traveling to get abortions is that they need child care for their current children, um, particularly in states that require waiting periods or multiple visits to, to have an abortion, that, that they, it's hard for them to get away from their jobs and to find someone to take care of the children that they have now. Well, I just want to hear what you're watching now that this decision has come down. Well, I'm going to see, you know, there's a lot of people have said, this is coming, this is coming, this is coming. And I think a lot of people just didn't believe it. It was just noise. Well, now this has come and it's happened. And I'm going to be watching to see what the actual response is from uh, from the rest of the country who didn't believe that this could happen. That's Julie Rovner. She's the chief Washington correspondent for Kaiser Health News. Julie, thank you so much for spending this time with us. And let's bring another voice into the conversation. Dr. Reagan McDonald-Mosley is a practicing OBGYN. She's also the CEO of Power to Decide. That's a nonprofit campaign to prevent unwanted pregnancies. Dr. McDonald-Mosley, this decision is, is raising questions about how overturning Roe may affect birth control, especially uh, things like Plan B and IUDs. Now that the final ruling is here, do you think it could have ramifications for birth control? I think that, you know, this ruling in particular, um, you know, will not have ramifications specifically for birth control. But I do think that the writing is on the wall, that it opens the door for for states uh, to take action in this realm. We know, for example, that Missouri um, last year introduced bills to limit public support and public funding for IUDs and emergency contraception, for example. Um, so it is possible that other states uh, will also follow suit and will try to limit access to contraception, which of, of course is important all the time, but even more important now, given the challenges that people will be having uh, to access abortion care in half the country. Well, and, and doctor, I understand you're seeing patients this morning what are you saying to them? What are you hearing from them? You know, I think it's important for people to know that folks um, come to the clinic every day to get this care, not as a political statement, because it's what's best for them in their lives in that moment, right? And so many of my patients who are coming into the clinic today to receive care, they're not even aware that this is going on. They're not political pundits. They're not reproductive health rights and justice advocates necessarily. 
they're just here making the best decisions for their healthcare and for their family in this moment. Um, and I think it's really important to recognize that um, this is a common experience. One in four people, one in four women will have an abortion at some point in their lifetime, right? And there aren't people who have abortions versus people who have continued pregnancies or people have miscarriages. People need different care at different points in their lives. And we should be designing our systems and our, our nation to support what people need in that moment. Well, Dr. McDonald Mosley, I wanna look at one of the areas where there may be concerns and That's because many state abortion bans have an exception for times when the mother's health is at risk. But how do states make that determination about what qualifies as a high-risk pregnancy? So that's exactly why laws like this are, um, and decisions like this are really damaging. Because every pregnancy, every situation is different. And and so people need to be be able to make these decisions with their provider, um, with the people that are important to them, with their faith leaders, if they're, you know, have a have a faith that's important to them and not based on arbitrary laws. Um, and we also know that the research is very strong that where abortion access is highly restricted, that pregnancy outcomes overall are worse, right? And as um, your guests have already mentioned, we're in a public health crisis already around maternal mortality. Black women specifically have three to four times the rates of maternal mortality in this country. And that is only going to get worse as abortion restrictions are propagated across the country. Well, we're hearing from lots of you. Lisa in Virginia says, I am thankful for today's ruling. I am also full of compassion for those who will find themselves in very difficult positions. We must now follow through with grace and mercy, providing health care, child care, and broad support for women and children. Let's go back to the phones. We have Derek on the line. Derek, you're an attorney. What's on your mind in light of this decision? Well, one thing I'm, I'm grateful for uh, the Supreme Court to finally come back to rule of law. I think so long in this country, we've developed this idea that everything we don't like should be prohibited by the Supreme Court and everything that we'd like should be mandated by it. Um, even Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that the foundations of Roe were very weak, but we, but a certain segment of the population liked the outcome, so let's go for it anyway. Secondly, you know, everybody says how radical this decision is. It's not radical at all. Griswold, finding rights is radical. And, you know, Dred Scott was was a precedent and overturned. And finally, if the court really was a radical, political, legislative-minded entity, they would have said that fetus equals person under the Constitution— and that would have been that would have been a mandatory ban of almost all abortions across the country everywhere. This is a reasoned decision. It allows the states to decide. And finally, the people that are all upset about the gun decision yesterday, where there's explicit language in the Constitution addressing the right to own guns and bear arms, and and then also upset about today where there's no language about abortion or anything. And I know we could talk about penumbras of rights and magically found rights in certain areas, but that's a very dangerous thing because if the court, keep in mind, if the court would have said that they magically found that a fetus equals a person under the Constitution, it would have been essentially a nationwide ban of abortion by five or six judges. That didn't happen. The states can do what they want. There's legitimate reasons on each side. You know, this show has been pretty much a cavalcade of how horrible it is that some people won't be able to get an abortion. 
But, you know, there's a very legitimate counter-argument that every abortion ends a human life. Derek, thanks. Lee, I want to come to you. Derek says the court could have decided that personhood starts um, at conception. And while the court didn't decide that, there are trigger laws in places in states. 13 states across the country have trigger laws in place. And some of them are moving towards that personhood argument. So I just want to hear your reaction to that first. So first, I would just correct the fact that Justice Ginsburg didn't agree with, um, you know, the right protected uh, in Roe and Casey. She actually would have recognized that states cannot prohibit or restrict abortion on the basis of equal protection because it denied women's equal personhood and ability to participate in society. Um, So she just would have adjusted the reasoning in Roe and Casey, but not the outcome. You know, she's written in powerful ways about how women's ability to control their uh, reproductive lives fundamental and essential, you know, to their ability to participate equally uh, in society. While it is true, the court did not today hold that states must ban abortion in a remarkable passage in the opinion that was still in the original draft leaked opinion, the court said that states have a legitimate interest in the preservation and protection of potential fetal life at all stages of pregnancy. So they are nudging states and signaling that they are completely okay with complete and total abortion bans, possibly with no exception for instances where abortion might be necessary to save a life, you know, the woman's life, the person who is pregnant. And in my view, right, that is grossly devaluing the life and, you know, potential of the pregnant person. Lee, I also wanted to touch on Derek's other point. Uh, I've been hearing many people make a connection between this decision and the Supreme Court's decision to uh, overturn New York State's right to uh, require certain regulations around guns. And uh, people say, you know, there's there's the right to have a gun. And when you look at the Second Amendment, it, it is a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So I'm curious to hear your interpretation of that and how this decision around what a state is able to do and not able to do bumps up against this other decision around gun regulation. I think it is extremely revealing about this court's itinerant commitment to democracy and to federalism, that at the same time it is insisting on returning the issue of abortion back to the states and the democratic process. It is refusing to do the same with respect to the issue of gun regulation, notwithstanding the epidemic of gun violence in this country. What is particularly striking is that on these two opinions, between these two opinions, the court could not even be consistent over the span of 24 hours in its analysis of history. Today in Dobbs, the court insisted on relying on 13th century history. Yet yesterday in Brune, the decision invalidating New York's gun regulation, the court said historical evidence that long predates the ratification of the Constitution may not illuminate the scope of the right and refuse to consider 13th and 14th century legislation restricting gun rights. Dr. McDonald Mosley, as you consider your practice and and other OBGYNs across the country, what's top of mind for you in terms of your concerns about what this means for providing health care for people? Yeah, thank you for that. And if I may, I think, you know, I just wanted to respond to the caller who said that, you know, this was 
purported to be a radical decision. And it, from a medical and public health perspective, it really is a radical decision and really going in the opposite direction of the global tide to increase abortion rights. Northern Ireland, for example, which was previously a notable exception in Western Europe, legalized access to abortion in 2019. Mexico's Supreme Court ruled in September of 2021, just six days after the Texas SB8 decision passed that penalizing abortion was unconstitutional and Colombia legalized abortion up to 24 weeks in February of just this year. So this is completely in the opposite direction of the global tide to increase access and will have huge ramifications for people in the states uh, where abortion is being restricted, but frankly, across the country, as it even becomes harder for people in states where it's allowed to access care just based on the sheer volume. Um, and so, you know, what folks are, are thinking about, right, is how to connect people to care, um, how to make sure that people have the resources to get to the care that they need, understanding that the impacts of these restrictions will have a disproportionate impact in communities of color, in lower income communities, and with younger people. And so we really have to take next steps, centering equity and centering the people that are going to have the most barriers to care. Let's take one more call. We have Jackie from Arlington. Good morning. I just wanted to go back to what Leah and others were talking about with health care issues regarding the mother and the families and the effects that this will have on children as well. I think that in a lot of states, women right now are being painted into a corner where the only remaining decision that they will have is to withhold sex. Jackie, thanks for that call. We also got this comment from Anne in Green Bay, who says, my friends and I are stunned. We are now living under an 1849 law on abortion here in Wisconsin, a law created by white men in an era when African-Americans were slaves and women were legally akin to property of their husbands. As we're still processing this ruling and, and reading all 200 pages of this decision, Leah, what's top of mind for you? What is top of mind are the consequences for millions of women who are suddenly living in a world with much more limited health care and the prospect that they will not be able to access safe and legal abortion starting immediately. These are dramatic consequences that will have profound effects on people's lives for generations to come. I think about how hard the generations before me worked to secure these rights only to see them taken away. You know, there are people in my family who passed away during due to illegal abortions. And I just shudder, you know, thinking about the prospects for you know, women of our generation and future generations living under this regime. And Dr. McDonald Mosley, in just a sentence or two? Yeah, I think Leah is exactly right. We have to think about the implications for people, uh, both in the immediate and in the long term, as well as uh, for public health um, and for uh, the care of the communities most impacted. That's Dr. Reagan McDonald Mosley, a practicing OBGYN. She's also the CEO of Power to Decide. That's a nonprofit campaign to prevent unwanted pregnancies. Also with us, Leah Littman, an assistant professor at the University of Michigan School of Law. She's also the co-host of the podcast Strict Scrutiny. Thanks to you both. Also with us, Anita Kumar, the senior editor of Standards and Ethics at Politico, Lisa Desjardins, a correspondent for PBS NewsHour, and Katie Turr, an MSNBC anchor and a correspondent for NBC News. She's also the author of Rough Draft, a memoir. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.